0: You know, singing hymns and praising God collectively has always been part of the DNA of the local church. Um, That's why I feel so strongly about um, the importance of us. And I want you to think about this for just a second. I've said it before, and I want to say it again. Probably for the only time this entire week, what we just did together, collectively, one voice, We verbalize and vocalize out loud the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise the one who paid my debt and gave his life, raised his life up from the dead. Now, I want you to know something about the power of the vocalization of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something. The devil flees from that. He runs from that because there's so much unity and there's so much power in the corporate body of Christ coming together out loud, proclaiming the gospel, Praising the Lord Jesus Christ together. It's one of the many witnesses that we of the church have been given. And that's really what I want to talk to you about this morning. As you open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 19, we're going to continue to look at the church in Ephesus as Paul is there and spending some time now uh, in Ephesus. And we're going to work through 19 over the next few weeks. But the title of the message this morning is Many Witnesses One Way. And I'm so thankful that God is a God who reveals. He's a God that initiates relationship. He's a God that that desires to make himself known to us. And you can think about from the very beginning, there have been so many witnesses of the Lord, but there's always pointing us to one way. One way of faith, one way of salvation, one way for forgiveness, one way for eternal life. The creation itself is a witness, as the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? The skies above proclaim the work of his hands. That we know that even the creation itself is one of God's witnesses, as we just got finished singing praise to, to God through singing and hymns, and that is one of God's many witnesses. And then we see that in the revealed word of God, from beginning to the end is that as we hold our Bibles the treasure the preciousness of this book that is a divine book inspired by God written by over 40 different authors over about a 1500 year period in three different languages men like shepherds and kings and prophets and priests and Fishermen and people from all walks of life and all different socio-economic and geographic places in the world, as God inspired them to write this collective witness of the Word of God, and yet they put they put it together, and it makes one complete, cohesive, coherent book and testimony. That there's one way of salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's one hero to the story. His name is Jesus. There's, there's a beginning, there's an end, there's a hero, there's an enemy. Uh, it's, it's just put together amazingly, miraculously. It's one of the great truths and evidences of the divine nature of the Scripture, the unity of the Bible, that all of these collective witnesses have come together, people like David and Moses, and Jeremiah, and Isaiah, and Zechariah, and Peter, and John, and Paul, and all of these men of God that he used to to inspire them to write the word of God. And we see how it all points us to Jesus Christ. What a powerful testimony that is. And as we look at Acts chapter 19, we're going to look at three other distinct witnesses that the Lord provides for us, and he, and he kind of gives us an opportunity to unpack those in the, in the passage of Scripture this morning, and I'm really excited about doing that for you this morning because I think it's a very good and a very uh, relevant and practical illustration about the many witnesses of God pointing us to the one way of salvation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you look at Acts 19, I'm going to read the first 10 verses, and then we'll jump in together. Acts 19, verse 1. It says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, then into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism, speaking of of John the Baptist. And Paul said John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him that is Jesus. Again John's witness as a one crying out in the wilderness you think about John the Baptist his ministry was was to be a witness to point others to Jesus. In verse 5 it says on hearing this they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and when Paul had laid his hands on them the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues And prophesying, there were about twelve men in all. And then Paul entered the synagogue for three months and spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, you might want to underline that. We're going to we're going to unpack that here this morning. Paul's preaching in the synagogue as he normally would do. And it says, when some became stubborn, they became hard-hearted, they continued in unbelief, they began to speak evil of the way before the congregation. So he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning day, day after day in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The first witness I want to share with you this morning is that God has given us the private witness of the Holy Spirit. Paul goes into Ephesus and stumbles upon some disciples. We're not 100% sure the nature of these disciples, if they were Jewish, uh, you know, disciples who had been raised in the synagogue or if these were uh, Greeks, you know, living in Ephesus who had been proselytized into the Jewish faith. But either way, they were determined to be Disciples and Paul begins to understand and ask questions, and he finds out that they were followers of John the Baptist. So, you know, even at that time, they had a, an incomplete understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that Paul directly takes them to this private witness of the Holy Spirit. So, they had not yet heard the entire gospel of Jesus Christ, they had not yet. Receive the Holy Spirit. Meaning this, Paul is taking advantage of an opportunity to point them to the necessity of spiritual rebirth. We know that Paul probably was thinking back to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 where the leader of Israel comes at night to meet with Jesus saying, Hey, we know you're a man from God. We know that you're something special. And Jesus begins to ask him questions. He said, Well, you know, unless a man is born again, he's not going into the kingdom of heaven. Speaking of spiritual rebirth, even Nicodemus at the time didn't quite understand what Jesus was saying, but Paul here again is is talking about this private, internal, personal witness, the indwelling presence, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, and so he's teaching them now the need for the Holy Spirit before he begins to clarify this whole thing about baptism. Baptism. Now, in John chapter 7, I want to read something to you because I think it's interesting. We, we, we as theologians, we do look at the Old Testament and the work of the Holy Spirit in the old, under the Old Covenant and the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant in a little bit of a different light. And you say, well, why would you do that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus said this in John chapter 7, verse 37. Listen to what Jesus said. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now listen to what John says. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Very important, very interesting verse there. John is writing retrospectively looking back on this encounter that Jesus had on the day of the great feast and John recognized at the time that what Jesus was talking about was that there will come a time when the Holy Spirit will be poured out the indwelling presence and regenerative work of the Holy Spirit will be in every believer and it will be like a spring of living water inside of them that never runs dry. But John recognizes that the Spirit had not yet been giving in that capacity. We see in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people, but then he would what? Sometimes he would leave. The Holy Spirit would inspire David to write Scripture, but that doesn't mean that he had the same indwelling presence, regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in the same sense that we understand it after the the death, burial, resurrection, and glorification, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Because the Scripture said the Spirit had not yet been given in that capacity because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so we know that when Jesus is talking to his disciples uh, on the night before his betrayal, he's talking to them a lot about the helper. Look, it's better that I go away to be with the Father because if I do not go to be with the Father, then you will not be able to receive the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure the disciples are sitting there thinking, what do you mean it's better that you go away? That's, that's ludicrous. No, he's saying, no, you don't understand. I'm limited right now by my body. I'm limited in space and time. I can only do one thing at one time as, as the Son of God in the human form in flesh. But he said, but when I go in and I'm glorified and I go to be with the Father in heaven, he says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit so that he can indwell every single believer on the face of the planet so that wherever you go, I go. And John sees this, and he recognizes this. And so the disciples here in Ephesus, see, Paul shares the gospel with them, and they're believers now in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting because you do have this whole deal with baptism and Paul laying on his hands to the disciples, and and I'm not going to get caught up in that today because what we have talked about throughout the book of Acts is this. If you, if you pay attention to how the book of Acts is laid out, there are three or four special occasions where the, the Holy Spirit is, is poured out on certain groups of people. And if you pay attention to how that happens and what God is doing is that basically you see it first at the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is poured out to the believers there in Jerusalem. And then a few chapters later in Acts 8, as the gospel spreads to Samaria, you see the disciples hear the good news that the Samaritans are coming to Christ, and so the the apostles go to Samaria, and they lay their hands on them, and they receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then you see it a little bit later in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius the first, we we start looking at the Gentiles now being uh, people of faith and receiving the good news of Jesus Christ, and then they receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I think right here in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 is a very similar occurrence. Now, if you think about what I just described to you, these are not normative because every single believer in Christ Jesus did not require an apostle to come and lay their hands on them for in order for them to receive... The Holy Spirit, these are symbolic outpourings on the different people groups in order to validate the Great Commission. Because what did Jesus Christ say? He said, you shall be my witnesses in what? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so when you see those pictures of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it represents every one of those concentric Circles as the gospel begins to spread from Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth. And that's what's happening here. And so when we start talking about the private, personal, internal witness of the Holy Spirit, let me just remind you real quick about the witness and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me share with you a couple of verses about the witness of the Holy Spirit. Number one, we recognize the Holy Spirit is God, He is a person, He's not a force. He's not like the, you know, the force in Star Wars, some impersonal force that kind of gives us power like electricity or something like that. No, he is God. He is a person. He communicates. He writes. He grieves. He has a personality. He talks. He can, he can be quenched. He can be grieved. He can be lied to. All of these things. We, we pick up on these things as we study the Holy Scriptures. But think about the witness of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says this. I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The true implications of a sinner acknowledging their need for Jesus Christ and saying, I trust in Jesus Christ. He is Lord of my life. Paul says, no one can do that unless you do it through whom? Through the Holy Spirit. That's his witness. Romans 8.16 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, there comes a point where you have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ where you recognize you belong to God the Father. You, he is your Heavenly Father. You are one of His children. And there's nothing in the world that could ever make you doubt that. Because the Holy Spirit now dwells in you and He bears witness with your spirit you belong to God you're one of his children also Jesus teaches us tremendously about the ministry of the witness of the Holy Spirit listen to some of the things he said he said but the helper the Holy Spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you think about that for just a second The Holy Spirit brought to remembrance, and we'll do that even in our lives as well. He will bring to our remembrance things that Jesus has said to us and we have learned and that he has taught us. In verse 13 of Acts 16, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So you see a pattern here. The ministry, the private witness of the Holy Spirit will always lead us into truth, will always lead us into things according to the word of God, and ultimately will always lead us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He is a witness pointing others to Jesus. Now let's talk about the work of the Holy Spirit real quick. It's important that we remember this as well. Francis Chan wrote a great book a few years ago called The Forgotten God, and he just really unpacks the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, we talk a lot about God the Father. Sometimes we talk a lot about Jesus Christ, God the Son, but sometimes we kind of forget about God the Holy Spirit because he often does work behind the scenes and kind of has his ministry that is not always out in the forefront. So sometimes he is the forgotten God. That's the whole premise behind Francis Chan's book. is a really good book, but let's remember some of the things that the Holy Spirit does in his ministry and his work. First time you see the Holy Spirit mentioned is in Genesis chapter 1. It says he is hovering over the waters. He's right there at part of the entire creative process as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit co- collectively work together in unity to create. The Holy Spirit is there giving life and bringing life into everything that God creates. You see that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the prophets to write the Holy Scriptures, as 2 Peter chapter 1 says. It says, for no interpretation of Scripture comes through man's own will, but it is men who are carried along by the Holy Spirit are the ones who write the word of Scripture according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit is the author. He is literally the author of the Holy Scriptures. That's part of His work. The Holy Spirit comes to bring conviction of sin. You thank God as a believer for the Holy Spirit because when we're living in any way that is unpleasing to God and that is living in any type of sinful pattern in our life, guess what the Holy Spirit, He will gently and lovingly put His finger right where our problem is. He won't condemn you. He won't accuse you. He will not curse you. But He will convict you because He wants us to live what kind of lives? Holy. Because He is the... Holy Spirit. And if he's living within us, he wants us to be holy like he is holy. That's part of his ministry. Holy Spirit is involved in regeneration. It's the the spiritual rebirth. It's the point where every believer, as they trust in Jesus, putting faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the Spirit of God comes and unites himself with our spirit. He gives us new spiritual life. That's why the Bible can say anyone who is in Christ is a what? New creation. You've been spiritually reborn. The Holy Spirit gives us our spiritual gifts and equips us for service in the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit produces fruit. We can't manufacture love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. We can't just manufacture that out of our own you know, determination. That has to be something that the Holy Spirit produces In our lives, Galatians 5, you're familiar with that passage of Scripture, right? The Holy Spirit seals every believer. This is one of the most beautiful pictures in Scripture to know that you have the assurance of your salvation. If you've ever been on a ranch, you know that a rancher takes the hot iron and he brands his cattle so that that cattle happens to slip away. The neighbor may find it and says, Oh, he belongs to such and such because I see his what? His brand. The Holy Spirit brands our soul. He seals us. He puts his mark on us. Now, he's invisible. He's a spirit. But when we stand before God, the Lord will look at us, and we will have been sealed, branded by the Holy Spirit. And God says, hey, guess what? You belong to me. And then there's so many other things. The spirit of discernment. He gives us wisdom. He allows us to interpret and understand the word of God. The work of the Holy Spirit. And look, that's just scratching the surface. And so we see here that Paul goes straight to the heart of the matter. Hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Very important question, number one. He wanted to get to the internal private witness of the Holy Spirit. But the second witness he starts to talk about now is the public witness of believer's baptism. I said that intentionally for a reason. The public witness of believer's baptism. Look at what he says in Let me see. He says it in verse 2. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? There's no mistake that Paul goes straight to the heart of the matter. Before he starts talking about John's baptism and a baptism of repentance and the baptism of Jesus and all of that kind of stuff, make no mistake about it. Paul wanted to make sure that these disciples first understood That salvation is by grace through faith. That the first matter to settle is, did you believe? That's why we call it believer's baptism. Now, these men had heard and had identified with John the Baptist. Now, let's remember what John the Baptist, his baptism was that of repentance. What does that mean? John called the people of Israel to identify with their sin. This is very important that you understand this. As John went out, he went out to prepare the way for the Lord. And he was calling collectively the whole nation of Israel. He's saying, you need to examine yourselves and identify with your sinful need because there's one coming after me who will save your soul. But in order for you to be prepared to receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you first need to be in a spirit of humility and a proper posture to understand your need for a Savior. And that's why John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. His message of repentance was not enough to save any lost sinner. You understand that? John's baptism and his message of repentance was incomplete. He didn't have a ministry of salvation. He had a ministry of preparing the people's hearts to receive the salvation in Jesus. And it's interesting that just like the Holy Spirit, his ministry is always to point people to who? To Jesus. If you see the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we just read in John, he's always pointing others to Jesus, glorifying Jesus, lifting up the name of Jesus. Let me tell you something. You know what John's ministry was like? The very same thing. John was always pointing others to Jesus. Ever since that very first day when he saw Jesus walking down the street and he stopped, I can just picture it, and he stopped in his tracks and his disciples were following him and undoubtedly they stopped behind him and he stopped and he saw Jesus and he pointed and he said, Behold, take a look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know what John told his disciples? Follow him. There's one who's coming after me who's greater than me. I must decrease so that he what? So he may increase. John pointed other people to Jesus. And so Paul encouraged these disciples at Ephesus. He's saying, listen, first believe, settle salvation, receive the Holy Spirit, believe and be born again, and then be baptized Not in John's baptism, but in Jesus' baptism. Well, you say, what's the difference? If John's baptism was that we were to identify with our sin, Jesus' baptism was we're going to identify with salvation. We're going to identify with the Savior. That's what Jesus' baptism was all about. You see, because if they had known Jesus' baptism, what did Jesus command his disciples? He said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They said, we didn't even know anything about the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean they had no concept of the Holy Spirit. But these men didn't really recognize That part of salvation, according to the new covenant, was that the Holy Spirit of God comes to live in you and dwell in you and manifest himself in you. They didn't understand that. But had they understood the baptism of Jesus, they would have known, you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of Jesus is important. Now understand, these men were baptized twice because they were first baptized into John's baptism, which there was nothing wrong with that, but it was incomplete. Once they understood the the totality of the gospel and they believed in Jesus and were born again and received the Holy Spirit, now it was time for them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may have a similar experience out there today. Some of you may have grown up and, church and going to VBS, and maybe you had an emotional experience as a kid, or maybe all your buddies and friends were were getting baptized when y'all were young, and you're like, hey, I want to be baptized too, and you went through the whole process and got dunked underwater, and it really had no effect on your life. And then later in life, you did come to really trust and believe in Jesus, but then you started to kind of doubt and question, well, I know I was baptized back then, but I don't think I really understood what was going on back then. But now I know I'm a, I'm a Christian. I know Jesus lives in me, and I have a relationship with Jesus. So maybe I need to consider whether or not I can be rebaptized. And that's part, you know, back in uh, the the Reform Reformation days, the Anabaptists were the, the, the founding of the Baptist um, you know denomination and they were teaching believers' baptism, and they were much persecuted by many of the Reformers because of it because the Catholic Church and many of the Reformed uh, denominations, they, they sprinkle and baptize infants, infant baptism. And, and the, the Baptists were coming along saying, but wait a minute, what we read in the Scripture is that you have to be an understanding adult or at least have the capacity to hear and believe and, and receive the gospel and be saved, and then baptism follows that. And so the Baptists were coming along saying, you need to get rebaptized. It doesn't matter what happened when you were an infant. You didn't even understand what was going on. This is an opportunity for you to make a public profession of faith as a as a conscious believer in Jesus Christ and let me tell you something they were persecuted because of this they the people thought they were teaching heresy but if you look at the scriptures it is believers baptism and that's what we would practice and believe here at Christ church and so Paul knew in that order that they needed to identify with Jesus to fulfill this act of obedience and be baptized in the name of Jesus once they believed And so he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, baptism, guys, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, Baptism is so closely associated to salvation that a lot of times it brings confusion for people. Because most people, when they think back about their salvation, they oftentimes think back to their what? Their their baptism. And, And there's nothing wrong with that. But then you have some denominations, again, that begin to teach that it is the baptism itself that either saves you or solidifies your salvation. It's like, well, yeah, you can believe in Jesus and you're saved, but you're not really fully saved until you're what? Until you're baptized. But see, that's not what the Bible teaches. But the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. You cannot add anything to true salvation by grace, not even baptism. But it is a big deal. And it is important, as every believer should understand what it really means, it is a public witness for us to understand that we have made a conscious commitment to trust Jesus Christ. And let me tell you what baptism is. I'm going to reel off a couple of things. It's an opportunity to fully identify with the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a privilege to publicly acknowledge The Lordship of Jesus Christ, remember, it's a public witness. It's our way of declaring to the world our love and devotion to Jesus Christ. I kind of talk talk about baptism as like a marriage ceremony. When you get married and you fall in love, you're so ready to stand up before God and all the witnesses that are around you just saying, I pledge my life and my love and my devotion to this one person till death do us part. That's kind of what baptism is for a believer. It's saying, I want the whole world to know From this day forward, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm not ashamed of Him, and I love Him, and I'm devoting my life to Him. The whole trajectory of my life has changed because of who I am now in Jesus Christ. It's standing in agreement with everything that Jesus Christ said and did. It's the formal initiation into the body of Christ. In order to become a true Member in that sense into a local body we want you to be baptized or have been baptized in a very similar uh, doctrine of faith. And it is the outward expression of our inward spiritual transformation. So you see Paul is talking about now the private witness of the Holy Spirit and he's talking about the public witness of believers baptism. But there's a third witness here. The third witness is that God has given us the perpetual witness. Perpetual means Ongoing, right? It never stops. God has given us the perpetual witness of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Amen. The church in those days was given a name. As a matter of fact, when you read Paul's story about his persecution of the church, it said Paul was a persecutor of the way. Right here in, a, in a, excuse me Acts 19, look at what it says. When these people became stubborn and continued in unbelief, they began speaking evil of the way. What in the world is they, are they talking about? The way became a label or a name synonymous with the early church. Why? Because the early church believed and proclaimed that no one could come to the Father in heaven and have a relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. The early church would firmly believe and confirm and proclaim that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The early church would have been steadfast in proclaiming the words of Jesus Christ himself in John 14 who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father in heaven except going through me. There is an exclusive claim. In the early church, in the testimony of the biblical prophets and the apostles in the New Testament, it is an exclusive claim that does not sit well in our culture today because our culture today is a culture that has been infected with the disease of moral relativism. What does that mean? The culture today would have us to believe that truth is not settled. Truth is not an objective standard that we measure up to, that's outside of ourselves. The culture today would have us to believe that truth is something that we get to decide and define on our own. So you may have heard it said this way. Hey, brother, I know you may be a Christian and everything, but hey, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. You ever heard that one? Or you may have heard it this way. You know what, I appreciate what you're saying, brother, but there's really no such thing as absolute truth. You ever heard that one? Next time somebody says there's no such thing as absolute truth, say, is that an absolutely true statement? (laughs) Because what you've just done is made an absolutely true statement that there's no such thing as absolute truth and you just knocked your knees right out from under yourself. You see, they don't think about things like that. But that's the culture that we live in. But the early church had an exclusive claim. And that claim was that there is only one way of salvation. The great late C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said once that there are only three possibilities for a man who goes around making the claims that Jesus Christ made while he was on earth. If you've ever read the great work C.S. Lewis wrote, Mere Christianity, he he, he points on these things. He says, basically, he used to be an agnostic. He wasn't a believer. He came to faith later in life. He was a very brilliant man, one of the great apologists of the Christian faith throughout the 1940s and 50s. And C.S. Lewis said this, when I examine the life of Jesus Christ, this is a man who went around telling people that he was God. He went around telling people that he can forgive them of their sin Went around telling people that he was going to be resurrected from the grave. Went around teaching people with the authority as if he was speaking on behalf of God, not just claiming to be God. And here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said there's only three explanations or possibilities for a man that does those kind of things. Number one, he's either a liar who is intentionally deceiving other people. And C.S. Lewis said, if Jesus is a liar, then he's on the same grounds as the devil himself to be such a, a terrible liar, to deceive people intentionally like that. That's one possibility. Or maybe he's just a lunatic. Maybe he's just a guy that lost his mind and was living in delusion and just had some dreams of grandeur, and he's going around telling people that he's God, but maybe he's just really deceived himself, and he's a lunatic. It reminds me of a story of a gentleman who was in seminary class and part of his evangelism class, what they, they made the students go out every week and they had to share the gospel with so many people, right? I mean, it was kind of like, okay, you've got to make sure you share the gospel with X number of people every single week. And so this one guy, he was getting frustrated because he just wasn't really motivated and he said, okay, finally, I'm just going to do it. My assignment's coming due this week. I just got to go do it. So he goes to McDonald's. And he, and he pulls up a chair, he sees a guy sitting over there by himself, and he pulls up a chair, and he sits down, and he says, Hey, man, do you know Jesus? And the guy looked at him and said, I am Jesus. <laughs> All right, brother. We appreciate it. Have a good night. Check that one off the list, right? I just met Jesus. If somebody were to tell you today I am Jesus, immediately what are we going to think? Man, there's something wrong with him. He's not all right upstairs, right? But think about what Jesus is doing. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's the Lord. There's no other possibility. There's no other explanation. He cannot be, he's got to be one or the other. And we know that the testimony of Jesus Christ is that he truly is the Son of God and the only Savior of the world. He is the the long-awaited Messiah based on the collective witness from beginning to end, pointing all all of us to Jesus Christ, Him being revealed as the Son of God, everything that He did. Obviously, the validated stamp of approval on the life of Jesus Christ was not just that He was willing to die on the cross for our sin, but that He was resurrected from the grave. We're going to get to that here in just a second. And so because we live in a culture... Of moral relativism where they don't want to preach absolutes. Let me give you a perfect, relevant example is worth going here for just a second. If any of you watched one of the Democratic presidential debates this past week, there was one particular lady who's a candidate who really kind of got some press. If you're paying any attention at all, As a matter of fact, after the second presidential debate, this person was searched on Google more than any other Democratic presidential. Con- uh, candidate. Her name is Marianne Williamson. You say, what's the big deal? A lot of people in the media said she kind of stole the show. She used words like there's a dark psychic force controlling our country. Well, you start to do a little bit of research about this person, Marianne Williamson. you like, well, you know, she's basically a new age guru. That's who she is. She is Oprah Winfrey's mentor. You say, well, how is some lady, some new age guru who just kind of has developed a following? How could she possibly ever even be considered for the presidential nomination? And you say, you forget what just happened a couple of years ago. Donald Trump is our president, right? Like, how is that possible? So so don't discount anything these days. But, you know, here's a perfect example of how we need to be informed about what's going on in our culture. Because if you know anything about Marianne Williamson... Again, she is Oprah, Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey's spiritual mentor and guru. <clears throat> now, if you don't know how, what Oprah Winfrey believes, let me show you a couple of quotes. There are millions of ways to be a human being and many paths to what you call God. She said, well, I am a Christian who believes that there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe that there is only one way. There are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. She's getting a lot of this from Mary Ann Williamson, who got her stuff from a lady named Helen Shuckman, who wrote a book called A Course in Miracles. You can go and research all this stuff. She wrote it back in the 70s. And what's interesting about Helen Shuckman is that her her existential experience is very similar to that of Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormon church, and Muhammad, who founded Islam. She said she was beginning to receive visions, channeling a spirit, and she later said this spirit was actually the spirit of Jesus. But in her own words, this Jesus came to her to tell her that everything that we have in the, gospels and in the new testament is really been corrupted and it's wrong and this spirit of jesus came to tell her how to correct all of it and to reveal the real gospel that's the same thing that joseph smith said about mormonism that's the same thing that muhammad said in islam they all came to basically deny the deity of jesus christ and deny the validity of the scriptures and if you just wonder what this lady, Ms. Helen Shuckman, says, listen to what she believes. <coughs> Quoting from A Course in Miracles. Do not make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross. The only message of the crucifixion is that you can overcome the cross. Until then, you are free to crucify yourself as often as you choose. This is not the gospel that Jesus, she said, intended to offer you. Just like that. That's coming from page two fifty nine, quoting from a course in miracles. Marianne Williamson, a presidential candidate, is getting. She reads that book every morning. Of course, by her own confession, that's her devotional time. What did Paul say about that kind of talk in Galatians one? Paul would say this: that if anybody comes to you, even an angel of light, proclaiming any other gospel than the one that you have received, let him be accursed. You know what Paul was saying? That's one of the strongest words in the Greek language. Let them be damned to hell. That's what he's saying. If anybody's peddling a false gospel such as Helen Shugman or Marianne Williamson, let them be accursed. I'm going to go ahead and just spend a minute here on what Marianne Williamson has said. She said, Jesus actualized the Christ mind and he was given the power to help the rest of us reach that place within ourselves. He was sent down by God as we all are. We are all extensions of the mind of God. One gentleman, Bill Elliott, interviewed her and asked her, was Jesus the only son of God? She said, hogwash. First of all, I believe we are all sons of God, and it is our destiny to be as Jesus. She said, the difference is he was a son of God who fully remembered that he was a son of God, and he displayed that. Secondly, there is only one soul. To say that there's only one begotten son doesn't mean that someone else was it, and we're not. It means that we're all it. There's only one of us here. This is the kind of new age stuff that Marianne Williamson is teaching. She said this, I believe all the great religious systems are doors. As Jesus said, my father's house has many rooms or doors. Not to mention, this is interesting, there were reports that came out after the presidential debate that said that Williamson actually has an occult task force which was a group of 13 chaos magicians, witches, and energy workers who were doing synchronized gestures to help their candidate gain more visibility in the presidential race and more airtime during Tuesday's Democratic debate. She's tried to since kind of distance herself from this, but there is a group of people who said they were doing occult, witchcraft, and magic to try to get her more airtime. And guess what? Kind of worked, didn't it? Now she's the most searched candidate on Google. Guys, at the end of the day, what's happened is this new age religion, this moral relativism has taken the gospel and says, listen, there's no such thing as absolute truth. There's not just one way to heaven. There's many roads that lead to God. And you'll hear that over and over and over again. Matter of fact, you may have seen this on somebody's bumper sticker before. You ever seen that? I don't think they asked Jesus if they could put his cross up there, though. Because they didn't take into account the things that Jesus himself said, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, there is no room for inclusion of all these other religions because Jesus doesn't leave any room for neutrality. He says, you're either what? For me or you're against me. There's no other room. Now, there is a reason why Jesus is the only way. He is the God. He is the creator. He stepped out of heaven. He took on human form. He revealed the true God to mankind. No one else fulfilled the perfect standard of righteousness on our behalf. He lived a perfect life. He was perfectly pleasing to the Father in heaven. Nobody else ever lived a perfect life. No one else ever died a substitutionary death on the cross in our place, bearing the punishment for our sin. No one else can forgive us of our sin because he's ultimately, as God, is the only one who has the authority to forgive us of our sin. No one else was resurrected from the grave, defeating death. He has the power alone to give us eternal life because he lives. He's also able to give us the power over etern- for eternal life. No one else has been exalted to the highest position of the authority of the universe, having triumphed over all the spiritual forces of evil and powers of darkness. He's put all of God's enemies under his feet. This is why we proclaim an exclusive gospel because nobody else has done that. Jesus Christ solves every problem that we have within this human condition. He solves our sin problem. He solves our death problem. Through the cross and the resurrection, he takes care of it all. No one else has ever been able to do that. That's why we say that there is only one way. As our praise team comes back up, I want to share this with you. Every once in a while, of course, I'll get on social media, and I'll kind of see the little memes that come through and all the little funny quotes and stuff like that. I I saw this one the other day. I said, hey, that's good. I'm going to share it with you. You ready? It said this, Jesus is not one of many ways to God, nor is he the best of several ways to God. He's what? He's the only way. Let me say that again. Jesus is not one of many ways to God, Nor is he the best of several ways. The gospel says he is the only way. You know, when I've heard people say that all roads lead to God, there's a little bit of truth to that. Let me tell you why. Because you can take any road that you want to, and in the end, guess who you're going to stand before? You're going to stand before God. But only one road leads to everlasting life. Only one road leads to restoration and reconciliation with God. And that's the narrow way. That's the door. That's Jesus. And if we've ever needed to preach that there's only one way, it's in this day and in this age. Because that's the power of the gospel. Unto salvation for everyone who believes. As we wrap up, I want to share this with you. Make sure today you have full assurance of your faith. Do you have the private, personal witness of the Holy Spirit? Do you know that you belong to God? Do you know that the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within you? Has He changed your heart? Has He changed your desires? Is He working on you? Make sure, make sure you have the full assurance of. Your faith, And then let's be unashamed as we publicly proclaim and witness to the world that Jesus Christ is the only way. As we get ready to respond, we're going to sing one more song. And as always, I want you to know this time is a time for you to respond to God. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe you need to fall on your knees before the Lord. Maybe you need counsel about what it means to be saved. Maybe you're not sure that you have that assurance of faith. Whatever it is, whatever it is that God's doing in your life this morning at this time, make sure that you respond to God accordingly as I pray for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are so good and gracious, that you would make only one way. And Lord, if we really step back and think about it, there can only be one way. There's only one way of salvation, and you it's on your terms, Lord. May we come to you on your terms Receiving the free gift of eternal life that you have provided through the finished work of Jesus Christ who is willing to come and die in our place and be resurrected from the dead to give us hope and eternal life. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this time that we are living, Lord, because there are opportunities for us to talk to others and share the gospel and be your witnesses. Let us continue this witness that you have given us to the glory of of the Father in heaven. In Jesus' name we do pray, and all God's people say, Amen. Will you stand together as we...